This is episode number 658 with Brian T. O'Neill, founder of Designing for Analytics. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today I'm joined by Brian T. O'Neill, who founded and runs Designing for Analytics, a consultancy that specializes in designing analytics and machine learning products so that they are yearned for and adopted by users. Brian also hosts the Experiencing Data Podcast, an entertaining show that covers how to use product development methodologies and UX design to drive meaningful user and business outcomes with data. In today's episode, Brian synthesizes the most critical information from his 100-plus podcast episodes to fill us in on what data product management is, why so many data projects fail, how to develop machine learning-powered products that users love, and the teams and skill sets required to develop successful data products. All right, let's jump right into our conversation. Brian, welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Kirill, the host of the show before me, had you on in episode number 353. It was a great episode, but it was also years ago, and we needed to have you back. Brian, how's it going? Where in the world are you calling in from? I'm still in Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, People's Republic of Cambridge, as it's called sometimes. A little less COVID going on. That was the deep COVID, like when we did that show, I remember. Oh, really? <laughs> so oh. things are a little better in that regard. I'm delighted to hear that. And so we were introduced to each other by Tom Davenport, who was a recent guest on the show. Mm-hmm. So he was in episode number 647. And as with many guests, at the end of filming with him, I said, Tom, you've been an absolutely A-plus amazing guest. Who else do you know? is an A-plus guest. And he right away said Brian T. O'Neill. And I immediately looked you up, loved what you had going on, asked you to be a guest on the show, only to later discover (laughs) (laughs) that Kirill had already had you on the show. But it doesn't matter because you're a fascinating person and I'm going to be asking different questions anyway. (laughs) All right, let's do it. Um, So you've been leading Designing for Analytics. It's your firm. You've been leading designing for analytics for 25 years. So um, designing for analytics is focused on making data products successful. So first, let's define for the audience what a data product is. Sure, sure. Well, first, I, I just want to correct that. I think that came from LinkedIn. So designing for analytics is is my new consultancy. Well, newish. It's about six what, six, seven years old now. So I've been I've been oh. doing design consulting for 25 years. I changed my oh. name and I formally focused in the data space, uh, whatever that was, six, seven years ago, something like that, oh. since I had kind of been naturally doing it with just the clients and, and projects. And even be- before when I had W2 employment jobs, I had been doing a lot of this kind of work. So I put an intention oh, behind my focus back then. So I just wanted to, to correct the record. Right. On so that. we could say Anyhow. designing for analytics with like capital letters has been happening for six years, Correct. but designing for analytics with lower, lower case, case. Letters <laughs> yeah, has been happening for 25 years. Yeah. Along quite a while, a lot of stuff with data. Yeah. So, but what was your second question? Sorry. Now that I've, I've, um, it was, what is a data product? Oh, what is a data product? Tom doesn't, Tom doesn't totally love my answer to this. And I, I, I understand why. But I'm going to give you what I call the producty, the producty definition, which is not like the the. There's some other definitions that are out there, but the way I kind of think of this is, it's a full end to end, human in the loop, 
decision support solution that's so good, somebody might pay to use it. And the important part of it, this is, this is not a perfect definition. It will not capture all solutions. The most important part of this definition, I think, for data professionals who, who are maybe hearing about data products and this idea of product orientation, the most important part of this definition to me is the last part of this definition, which is the so good that somebody might pay to use it. So what do I mean about this? If you look up at like a definition of the word product, we, we might think of product as like, it's the byproduct of labor, right? It's the thing that comes out of some labor. That is absolutely not what I am talking about. That's called an output. And, and I think the data community is really good at generating technical outputs. What I'm talking about is something that could be traded. It could be bought and sold. It, it has inherent value where value is a subjective thing in the eyes of the beholder. And so even if you're working internally, like let's say you work at a bank and you're, you, you help the fraud department and you build risk models or something like this, someone in that like risk department probably, maybe their compensation's based on like how much risk they cap or how much they prevent, you know, the, the bank from losing money or something. They're, something's on the line for them that's high value. And maybe they actually are funding projects with funny money between, you know, within the bank and all this kind of stuff, right? The, the important part here is like, it becomes a product when it's so good that they would pay to use it or they would give something up of value. It's indispensable. It has some quality attribute that is in their eyes and not ours. It's not about how accurate a model is. It's not about how cool the dashboard is because it uses violin charts or whatever it may be. It's all subjective from the them perspective. And that's the producty mentality that I'm trying to, to push with this. It's not about, it's, it's not really about the amount of effort that went into it or which kinds of tools and technologies went into it. It has nothing to do with that. It's human in the loop yeah. because the other side of this is like Tom, you know, Tom was talking, he's like, the one thing I don't like is like this, this excludes automation, you know, for example, solutions that are running fully automated. In my opinion, there's not a lot of solutions that are entirely fully automated that never have any humans. Like, what about model drift? What when things go off the rails? What happens when COVID happens? All of a sudden there's humans in the loop again, <laughs> right? So there's there's that whole side of it, but there's also the, the, who are the stakeholders or the sponsors or the third party affected people that may not even be in the room when the thing is made, but but let, let's take let's take like your bank, another bank example, like the, you know, uh, getting approved for credit, a line of credit, right? Some customer on the end who was not involved with building the model that decides whether they get a mortgage or not, that's a third party. All of these comprise humans in the loop. From a When we talk about this from a design standpoint, these are all humans in the loop. So there are humans in the loop even when the system is fully automated because the business is humans, the customers are humans, the customers are not machines, the business is not machines, at least not yet. <laughs> You know, there is no, this business is sometimes talked about this entity, like it's this uh, separate organic thing or it's a machine or something, but ultimately it's, it's John and Jane and whoever in some department that's quote mm -hmm. the marketing business or, and, and then their teams, et cetera. So that's why yeah. I think it does, it's, it humans in the loop is an, in, an integral part of this. Um, anyhow, this, that's my definition. This definition. Yeah. It makes perfect sense to me anyway, especially from the. UX perspective that you're taking here. It's sure. like, you know, there's there's a human 
with eyeballs on a screen, probably, who's interacting with this product. Right. And in the background, there are data or data models that are allowing aspects of the product to, um, to yeah, to, to function. Right. <laughs> uh, so lots of different ways that data or models could be involved in products. Um, so how do you bridge the gap between just having, like you said, that uh, lots of people, like data scientists like me, get super excited about, oh, this amazing model. Wow, look at this crazy thing we're doing. Look at how accurate it is. How do you bridge the gap between me being excited, <laughs> the us and them thing that you were talking about there, Brian, me being excited about this data science uh, capability and somebody out there being so excited about this capability that they're willing to pay me for it. How do you bridge that gap? The, so are you saying that the gap is that when John likes it, it's inherently not something yet that the customer likes? <laughs> and then uh, I guess so. Or, I guess like, so. or not you, but let's, who, I, whoever. But, yeah. But let's, yeah so, I mean, I guess the way that I, the way that I stated that question, I guess it doesn't automatically assume like your premise, um, the premise of your company and your expertise assumes that there are situations and from my experience, a large range of situations where a data scientist or machine learning engineer creates an amazing model and people don't want to use it. So how do hey, it's not my like, studies that says that <laughs> it's all the other studies out there that say it and there you know it's time and time again there's been repeated studies about the problems of these these uh, we're still we're standing up giant data infrastructure we, we as, as mark madsen calls it you know intergalactic you know data systems uh in order to stand up potentially usable things in the future and so a lot of these projects become, we're, what's our strategy? We're moving to Snowflake. We're doing data mesh. That's the strategy. And it's like, that's not really a strategy. There's no, there's no defined outcomes. There's no definition, definition of what done is. And done meaning qualities, OKR, like metrics, KPIs that have changed. That, that's all about building technical infrastructure, which yes, I understand that's part of it, but that's all just inputs. That has nothing to do with outcomes, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, <laughs> we, we go a lot of different directions here, but this premise that low adoption is a problem is, is, is something that's been quantified quite a bit. So, and, and the problems of low adoption can range. They, they can be all over the place from uh, the problem is not well-defined, which I think is quite frequently a problem. And I think one, one unique thing that data scientists and maybe some of your listeners have probably heard this is that what the data tennis game happens, I call it. And this is when, well, what's your business problem that you need help with? Well, we want to use machine learning, but you know, what could we do with this data? Well, what are you trying to change? Like, what's wrong? Like, what are you trying to do? Well, we want to know how machine learning can help us do something. And so we're hitting the ball back and forth and no one is stating what the problem is. The business thinks you're going to help me figure it out. That's what you're here for. And the data science team is like, no, I'm here to build models and predictive intelligence and, and help us solve problems that are really complicated, but I need to know what's wrong before I can do anything. <laughs> so then you get this question, well, whose job is it to surface the needs and the problems? And you can turn that into a, a role or you can, you can decide you're going to take ownership of that because you get tired of building stuff that doesn't get used. 
I, I think there's definitely a class of data scientists that are still happy to work on technically right, effectively wrong solutions, which you can write a paper about it. There's high predictive accuracy, maybe some unique technical aspects, but they the, the model sits on a shelf in GitHub, it collects dust, it doesn't get used. And the feeling is that's not my problem, that they don't know what they want to do or how they, they have no plans to operationalize this. I hate that word. I don't even like using it. The, the designer's way of thinking about this is no, the operationalization of the model is part of the design of the system entirely. You don't, you don't do that afterwards. It's not, a, it's not phase two. The operationalization, the usage of the thing is designed into the solution from the beginning. That's also just a product idea too. It's, it's, it's outcomes over features, right? It's not about building the things. It's about generating better future states for the people that we're here to serve. So you can either decide that it's someone else's job to figure out the problem, or you can, you can jump into that role. You can ask for help. You can hire data product managers, which I think are ultimately the people that are going to own that response. You, you have to do that kind of work. If you're really going to be data, doing data product management, that effectively is your work, right? It's to figure out what is the value that we're here to provide against the problems that we have surfaced. And I say surface because they're usually not on the surface. Data scientists particularly, you're going to get a lot of uh, what are called presenting problems, right? We need to use deep learning to do X. And your audience probably has no idea what they're talking about. I'm sure some of the people are laughing right now because you've had this conversation or we need to use k-means clustering. We want to use k-means clustering to do fill in something where it's not appropriate to use k-means clustering. <laughs> and but so you can you can laugh at that and say they have no idea what they're talking about, or you can look at it as this person is actually reaching out to me and they're trying to talk my language to help to help me understand what it is that they want. I, mm -hmm. I get the same thing as a designer when people come to me. It's always the dashboard needs to be redesigned. The dashboard needs like more, the charts need to look more like what if Apple had done it? It needs to look like the iPhone. This is the, this is the designer's equivalent to what I know the data science community hears a lot too. And I used to roll my eyes and like, okay, whatever. And now I know it's like, that's just like a, it's an opening line. It's just like the opening thing in our, in our little negotiation, the dance that we're going to do. And I know deep inside, there's actually a real need behind that. And so my job is to get in there and to ask good questions. And, and this is really good too for, for introverts. And I, I think my general feeling after several years of this, because my own audience is very quiet, is that there's a lot of introverted data professionals. You don't have to talk a lot. You, you actually can just do a good listening and ask good questions. And by asking good questions, we can, we can start to dig into really what's behind this person who wants to use k-means clustering to do whatever. And maybe that's a right tactic, and maybe it's not. And maybe that's the nine-month version of a project that could be done in one month, but they don't know the one-month version, and you do. And maybe it's only 70% accurate, but that's a billion dollars in cost savings and eight months faster. And so your job really isn't to give them k-means clustering unless that actually aligns with what the real needs are, which are not on the surface. They have to be surfaced much of the time. And, and so this is kind of actually normal state, I think, for people with product orientation. This is all normal state. We hear this stuff all the time. People, people aren't really good at like um, having this omniscient view of their own problem space. 
I mean, I was talking to someone who was I talking to about, oh yeah, I'm going to have this guest on my show to talk about building data products about reducing bias and models where the customers are data scientists. So we're talking about building tools for people who are generally pretty confident in their intelligence. That there, There's a sense sometimes that oh, I don't need it dumbed down. I don't want it too simple. I've heard this for my life designing for options, traders, and finance types. Don't take anything away from me. Don't take my data away from me. <laughs> but data scientists too have jobs to do. And there's, there's busy work. If you've, if you've spent time building pipelines or just trying to get access to the data set to do all the stuff you were trained to do, all that stuff, that's all tool time and stuff that you didn't, that's not really what you're there for, right? That's not your magic zone. Good design can eat all that stuff away. And in the same way, you can be trying to, to, to take off that kind of busy work stuff from your customer, your business sponsor, or whatever, to help them get the thing that they want. But they're not going to tell you what that is on the surface because they can't. Most of the time, they just they haven't thought about it that way. They probably don't know how to measure it yet either. And I think data people can ask the right questions and probably could suggest how to measure it. But it's like, well, when do you want to get a reduction in risk? And by how much? And like, well, how are we doing right now? I have no idea. Then how do we know it's wrong? And then you find out, well, someone yelled at me. Okay, now we have something. You, the, Someone's angry about X. Well, why are they angry? Well, we lost $2 million because this model went off the rails. Oh, okay. Now we're getting somewhere. You got to kind of do that dance. It's called laddering when mm -hmm. we ask the, the, or the five whys. There's different language to it. But asking why and you keep kind of keep, we call it laddering up until you kind of hit this nugget. And it can feel weird doing this kind of work because you feel like you might be nosy or I'm I'm challenging leadership or something like this. And I can guarantee you if you if you do it in the right way in a in a genuine uh, in a genuine way that's about serving, it's not about pointing out someone's faults, but it's like I want to understand it because I don't want to waste your time and money. I don't want to go build the wrong thing. This stuff is hard. It's not guaranteed to work. And it can take a long time. So the more I understand what's what's behind your ask for k-means clustering, the faster I can come back with something that will serve you. It's a nice. it's a gift. Yeah. So uh, so on one side of the equation, we have users or senior stakeholders who have some idea in their head of some some functionality that could be mm -hmm. better. Yep. if data or data models were involved. And then on the other side of the equation, we have data scientists who can implement these problems, but maybe don't always know the right questions to ask. They don't ladder. They don't go into the five whys. Yeah. They don't understand what the core need is. So the data scientists end up building something that is roughly, <laughs> you know, it is the deep learning model, uh, but it doesn't actually solve the problem that the user or the senior stakeholder came to them in the first place with. So it seems to me like a key role for bridging those two sides of the equation would be a data product manager. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so what's a data product manager and how does that role differ from a standard product manager? Like, is there some kind of skill set that a data product manager has that a product manager doesn't have? Well, yeah, and I don't think there's a, a great singular definition for that. I think uh, obviously with the data product management space, the there's this 
this assumption that there's this underlying foundation of ingredients, which is going to be information. And that's going to be part of these building blocks of whatever it is, whatever it is that we make. I think a, a lot of the day-to-day work doesn't necessarily change from product management, except that like in, in your, you know, your, your non-digital native companies, the product may not be sold, right? The product may be something for internal use. The same mentality, though, can be applied to these internal works, even if they're not going to pay for it. If you approach it as if my, our salaries depend on this, the business depends on this, and set the level of quality such that we, we have to be, we want to be not just doing okay, but ideally delighting people with the work that we do and set the bar at a quality where, again, that's measured and it's subjective based in the eyes of the person it's for, not us reflecting on our own work, that can still be applied there. And this is just very different than a project mentality because a project is kind of like, I've assigned the parameters, they fit in a JIRA ticket. Here's a definition of done, done. And it's like, we have no idea who asked for this. We don't know what department's going to use it. We don't know what engineer's going to implement it. It's just like done. And at some point, yeah, there are going to be technical delivery points that happen in any any kind of technology. These are we're still talking about software at the end of the day. We're still building software of some kind, right? But a product is actually kind of a a never ending game. It's kind of like reduce risk for the bank. Does the bank ever not have risk? No. <laughs> so that's actually a zero. It's just never ending game. And so for leadership, part of this idea, and Manav Misra talked about this, I interviewed him, he's the chief data analytics officer at Regions Bank, about how he had to help get management to think about funding these initiatives as kind of ongoing games, right? Like, there's always going to need to need to optimize marketing spend, or again, reducing risk for the bank, or whatever it may be, they don't really end, Right. So it's really a matter of like, this is always going on, but there's going to be milestones, which is like, you know, this quarter we have this objective around risk. It's still under this overall thing of risk management, but like this quarter it's about X, Y, and Z. And another product mentality, another producty way of thinking about this. And this is a lot of software companies are still maybe not doing this yet. Marty Kagan talks about this, but it's about assigning ownership of the problem space to the team and not the solution space. So the, so the team, which to me that the classic trio is someone in this product management or data product management role, someone in a user experience or design role, whether or not it's actually a designer, it's someone that has some responsibility, or maybe it's a BI developer, or a dashboard developer, but somebody who has some r- responsibility for what the end people are going to interact with. You have a software engineer who's going to package up the solution into whatever it's going to be. And the fourth role, I think, especially for data products, is going to be a data scientist or some relevant data professional on that. But the idea is that you take this power trio or power quartet and you assign them the ownership, which is like, hey, the bank needs to reduce risk by this much. They have an itch about fraud claims or they have an itch that there's lots of, you know, I, I don't know what it is. There's ATM fraud. They think that they think something's wrong there and we could have less ATM fraud. I don't know what it is. I'm just making something up. We don't know exactly what's wrong, but we want to reduce this by 50% next quarter. Go. That's very different than like, build me a model that will tell me which ATMs seem to have unusually high withdrawal rates. Check. Done. And business sponsors like, great. I always wanted to know this, but like, great. What are you going to do with that now? 
You can install right. cameras on the machines. Like they're all different. Some of them are a hundred times unusual. Some of them are 10 times usual. There's no plan. It's just someone thought they needed to see the most unusually high withdrawal rates on ATMs because it sounds like it's going to be useful. But no one asked the question, what decisions are you going to make once you find out? And the good thing is you can actually mock all this crap up in low fidelity. You can literally make this stuff up. Here's a report of the top 100 ATMs with strange amounts. Now what would you do with this user? And this is exactly what designers do with paper prototypes mm -hmm. or low fidelity mm -hmm. stuff. We use realistic data, as I talk about, and it's important with data products that we actually design our, 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 our wireframes or mockups or sketches with realistic data. It just means it's fudge data. But the point is we're, we're actually designing a little bit to figure out what needs to be designed. So by sketching out and working in low fidelity, whatever that is, that could even be an Excel. You just hard code a bunch of numbers into Excel and give them this report, and it's just a list of these 100 ATMs with weird numbers. And we're using that and putting it in front of the stakeholders said they wanted this and saying, what are you going to do with it now? Oh, well, okay, I'm going to put it into this thing and pivot it. And then I'm going to upload it into Tableau because really what I do is I want to see a chart of when these happen to see if they all happen at the same time. And then if they happen at the same time, then I'm going to call the security department and say, hey, could you watch on Mondays at Friday uh, at 2 p.m.? Because it seems like a lot of money gets taken out on Mondays at 2 p.m. Oh, so what you're really trying to do is figure out is there theft happening at certain times? And like, well, maybe we could just go do that for you and figure out and predict it, tell you when it happens and maybe get in front of it before it happens. Like would that, oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> but what they started with was I need a report of all the ATMs with weird withdrawal amounts on it, right? And you can right. see the trap here. And this is, this is why listening to the customer is important, but you're not there to listen to what they want you to make. You're there to dig into what the problems are you're there to understand what have you done in the past about it, to, to look at past behavior, which is a much better indicator of future behavior. You're not there to build exactly what they asked you for. It's almost always a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> okay, you got to pull <laughs> your like star so cruiser up. <laughs> you had a couple of great tidbits in here. So I want to start off with the power trio versus power quartet. <laughs> so um, in a standard product, so not a data product, a standard, say, software product. We have this power trio yeah. of a product manager, a user designer, and yeah. a software engineer. Yeah. But when it's a data product, we want to add in an additional person, a cellist, no, a data scientist. <laughs> uh, and, um, and that product manager in this course might be a data product manager. So we now have data product manager, UX designer, software engineer, and data scientist on this um, data product development team. Yeah. And you brought up a really great point there, which is that uh, this data product team needs to be asking the stakeholder, the user who's going to be using this data product, given these results, given these, say, low fidelity, as you described, fake uh, results, realistic fake results. Yeah. How are you going to act? Yeah. And by by going that extra step, you might be able to solve for the real problem that this person is looking for instead of the intermediate one. Right. And uh, yeah, so you know you could be spending months devising a solution only to come to having that solution in place and then say, oh, okay, this is great. Now what I'm going to need is this. And right. You could have just built the second thing. <laughs> the second thing. Yeah. Right off the bat. Yep. 
I also say that it doesn't necessarily mean you need four bodies, the trio and quartet. What the, the important thing is these are hats and they're roles. And right. you may not have all four of the roles, but I think all four of those are distinction, those distinct brain types, perspectives are important to have. And depending on the complexity of the situation, there might be a lot of need for a lot of data science hat on a project. Another one might, you know, it's like software, maybe it's this model's gonna have multiple touch points and internal services, API endpoints, mobile app, website, desktop, text messaging, like all over the place, right? Maybe the UX is really complicated because customers touch it, admins, partners, vendors, roles, everyone has roles, admins have this level, I can't see all the data that went into the model, but you can, blah, blah, blah. There's lots of complicated UX stuff. It's just important that these lenses are thought about here. And the other thing is by having the team work with the customers and the, the users here, you're gonna ask different questions. And this is the idea of like diverse opinions, diverse questions are gonna get you more information because like if you and I, John, went in and did a project together, you're gonna be asking questions that I'm not and vice versa. I'm gonna be thinking a ton about workflow. I'm gonna be listening for emotionally charged language that gets people up. I'm gonna be thinking about to, what are the other tool sets to use? How do you do this kind of stuff now? You might be looking at all the stuff no one is even thinking to ask for. It's like, okay, well, like, what if this scenario happens? Or it's like, what if this pipeline goes down and we don't have any customer data? Or what if it's Christmas? Christmas, so like we're expecting sales are gonna go crazy here. So have you thought about how it's gonna happen when, when we have these normally unusual high volume situations, which are not anomalies, they're kind of expected. Do you know when all those are? Should we be accounting for that in the model or not? Should those just be real blips that we wanna treat like, oh my God, what's going on? It's like nothing. <laughs> You're gonna be thinking about all those kinds of perspectives, right? The engineers will have a different thing. The product person could be thinking about, frankly, about marketing operationalization. How do I get everybody on board? What do I need to do to make sure that all the work that we did actually gets out and gets gets used and the, the business is aware of it? What's the ROI on this? Blah, blah, blah. So again, it, it's more about, it, it might, so it could be two people that 50-50 share these roles somehow, like two of them kind of like one data scientist who's also enough engineer that he can cover all of that person or he or she and, and the designer can also be the product right. person or whatever, you know. That makes perfect sense to me. And that kind of thing happens, especially in early stage companies where absolutely we can't necessarily have all of the roles that we want right. and we have to find people that are flexible yep. and who are interested in, in being that kind of flexible. Right. So uh, following along with this power trio slash power quartet analogy, <laughs> Brian, uh, you're not just the, uh, the founder of Designing for Analytics, you're also a professional musician. You're I'm also a, a customer. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. So you have a professional music education. Yeah. And uh, you do it professionally. Do you want to just, just tell us a little bit about it? I think it's interesting. Sure. Yeah. I went to school for percussion performance. So yes, I get, I get paid to play the drums. I got paid to play the triangle a couple of weeks ago at Albany Symphony. <laughs> so yes, they're, they're, I think I heard, I didn't watch the Super Bowl. So I was like, did you see the ad about the triangle players or something? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that was me. I literally got paid to play the triangle on one of the pieces. But um, yeah, I, 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 besides the triangle, I do play a, a bunch of other percussion instruments and I have a, a couple groups that I run. So I do a lot of Broadway uh, theater type uh, touring work that comes through the Boston area 
tour with my own groups uh, called Mr. Ho's Orchestratica is one of them. I play in a Klezmer Balkan party band for weddings and things like oh, that. That's Irish fun. music, all kinds of different stuff. So yeah, that's my, my other, my other life. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. Brian O'Neill into Irish music. You'd never believe it. <laughs> um, and uh, on top of your designing for analytics company and your professional drumming, you also host the experiencing data podcast. Yeah. So uh, this show as people would probably suspect, given everything that they've heard, learned about you so far on this episode, it gives a designer's perspective on why outputs alone, so things like machine learning models, dashboards, or apps, aren't enough to drive user or business outcomes with data. <laughs> and so you have lots of great guests on the show, people like Tom Davenport himself, uh, to, yeah, to provide a designer's perspective on solving these problems. So the kinds of the way that you're framing problems that you're describing to our audience today, mm -hmm. you're doing that over the course of <laughs> yeah. hundreds of episodes of your yeah. own show. So people who are interested in this, and I think a lot of people should be because designing human-centered data products is key to you as a data scientist or software engineer or business person, having your data product be used and generate revenue. Yeah, you got it. Nobody so wants technically go. right, effectively wrong, right? Like. <laughs> I mean, some people are okay with that, but but no one that's paying for it or waiting for your thing wants technically right, effectively wrong. They don't really even want machine learning. They don't want analytics. They want mm -hmm. decision support. They want to feel empowered. They want business value. They want to get a raise. They want a job title change. They want trust. They want empowerment. It's all this downstream feely stuff. <laughs> we have to, you got to get to that. That's actually where where it's at, and it feels weird because it's not about the model right but that's that's ultimately where the where, where the value is nice yeah i can see how invaluable you would be in so many data product design discussions brian if people want to follow your work after this episode other than your own experiencing data podcast how should they follow you or get in touch with you yeah i'm pretty i'd say linkedin is probably the place i'm most active uh, if you go to designingforanalytics.com you can find my linkedin uh link over there my email is brian b-r-i-n at designingforanalytics.com and uh, yeah, I'm a little bit on Twitter, not too, not too heavily involved over there, but uh, feel free to reach out. I've got a mailing list, a free mailing list on, where I put out insights about kind of this product orientation and increasing user adoption of data products and strategies for that. So, yeah. Nice. Love it, Brian. Thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Uh, I yeah. learned a ton and I'm sure our audience did too. I'm sure it won't be long, hopefully not another pandemic before we need to have you on again. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. Cool. That's it for today's mind-expanding episode with Brian T. O'Neill, in which he detailed how so many data products fail because the user problem being solved was not well understood from the very beginning, how data product managers work alongside UX designers, software engineers, and data scientists to form a power quartet that can develop outstanding data products, and how mocking up results with realistic simulated data enables you to simulate how a user of a data product would react, perhaps enabling you to dig deeper into what the user is really after. All right, that's super helpful and super actionable guidance. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed this episode with Brian. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there, folks. And I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon. <laughs>